You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Friday, everybody. Hopefully, everybody had a great week. I know my week was short. I'm actually recording Right now, it's Wednesday night. I only have, I took a half day on Thursday, and if you're listening to this on a Friday, that means that I'm in the turkey woods somewhere chasing turkeys with my wife. Um, We have a little secret honey hole that we go to. It's in a river bottom, and uh, every year turkey are in it, and every year we get a crack at them. So uh, hopefully this year is not any different. And we can call them in off the roost and blow their heads off with a shotgun. Well, my wife, anyway. My goal is to use a bow this year, and uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I can get a crack at one too. So, with that said, today's podcast is from Ryan Mead. We're, we're doing another hunter profile podcast, and uh, the guest today is Ryan Mead. He's from Michigan, and he's going to tell us a story about a buck that he chased in 2011, 2012, and then ended up killing in 2013 in the middle of Michigan in a honey hole surrounded by hunting pressure that uh, he... I don't know if you want to call it luck, but the luck of obtaining this piece of property also resulted in him learning a thing or two about how to hunt whitetails, how to gain access to different parts of his farm, and ultimately resulting in a kill. So it's a really, really cool story. But before we get into this week's podcast, I sat down recently with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras, and we talked about the positives and the negatives of trail cameras. You know, we talk about this a lot, Chad and I do, you know, sitting around as we're, we're trying to come up with new products um, or ways to make our trail cameras better. And the fact that since trail cameras have become uh, as big as they have over the last 10 to 20 years, they're hugely important. They allow us so many things that were not possible before trail cameras became available to us. You know, I talk about it a lot from my personal stances. Trail cameras have allowed me to evolve as a hunter so much faster than I think I would have without them because I'm able to see what's going on and learn so much about the deer that I'm hunting um, when I'm not in the woods. And, and seeing those things have allowed me to, to kind of pick and choose the places and the deer that I want to hunt so much more than I'd be able to if I was just sitting on a log hoping for the best like it was in the old days. But I will say... I think they do get people in trouble in the fact that, you know, a lot of times this day and age, if we're not seeing that big mature buck showing up on camera day after day, we're hesitant to sit in the woods and wait. And, and I think there are times when that's kind of come back to haunt me is the fact that, 
you know, no matter how much Intel we're able to get, no matter how much, uh, no matter how much digital scouting we're able to do with these trail cameras, um, and all the tools that are available to us these days, there's nothing that, that beats putting time in the woods and learning things that are out there. And I think sometimes we rely a little too much on that data when, you know, sometimes you have to shut that switch off and really go in there and figure things out, um, for yourself. If you guys want to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to check out their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com. I'm telling you guys, these cameras are badass, so it's at least worth looking into them. So go visit their website. Now, without further ado, here's Ryan Mead with his story of his biggest buck to date. All right. On the show with me now is Ryan Mead. How's it going today, Ryan? Good. How you doing, Dan? Doing great, doing great. And uh, today we are going to talk about a big buck that you killed with a bow this past year, right? Well, actually, it was two seasons ago in 2013. Okay, 2013. We're going to talk about about this bow hunting buck that you killed in 2013. And uh, but before we get into that story, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? and where you're from and what you do for a living all right um i'm from nashville michigan which is a real little town we don't even have a stoplight or anything um pretty country you know pretty much everybody around there hunts um i'm a, a property manager so you know we have a lot of rental properties with two companies that i work for do and i'm pretty much the guy that takes applications from people who want to rent them you know approve them or deny them and then rent them out fix them up when people move out, run them back up, that kind of thing. Is one of the questions on the applications, do, do your parents own hunting property? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, one, one of the, the properties that I manage actually is also where I hunt. So I, it's always a consideration to make sure that they're not going to be uh, wandering, you know, back in the, in the back 40. We won't let the housing commission listen to this podcast. <laughs> you could probably get, uh, are you a hunter? Yes. Okay. Your application has been denied. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure someone could, could turn, turn you in for like uh, being prejudiced or something against hunters. Yeah. <laughs> so, so your property manager, you live in Michigan. Um, the town, would you say Nashville, Michigan? Nashville, Michigan. Yep. So is uh, Nash? Whereabouts in Nash is Nashville in Michigan? Um, it's kind of in the middle of everywhere. We're about uh, forty-five minutes from Grand Rapids, just south a little bit. Okay. Okay. So, uh, is there a lot of hunting pressure in that area? Oh yeah, yeah. It's lots of small parcels. Um, like I said, pretty much everybody bow hunts. Every everybody gun hunts. Um, so so your your typical your typical Michigan area because every you know everybody I talk to says everybody hunts in Michigan like almost yep. everybody. So yeah, every, every every property's got a shack on it as you drive down the road. I it's one of the things I always look for when I'm driving. Gotcha. All right, so we're going to talk about this buck um, that you shot in 2013, and for the listeners out there. Um, if you are, if you're wanting to know what this buck looks like, go to the ninefingerchronicles.com, find this podcast post, and uh, you can take a look at his buck. But why don't, before we get into the actual story, 
Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're doing? I mean, I take it you're a whitetail nut just like the rest of us. So why don't you tell me what you're kind of from the end of the season to the beginning of the season and everything in between what your life is like or what your goals or your strategy is like to chase whitetails? Well, I feel like it's honestly, it changes every year because I feel like I learn new things and I take in new strategies. So it's kind of never remained the same ever since I became serious about it, um, which was probably like seven or eight years ago. I became serious about bow hunting. Um, I gun hunted when I was younger, you know, I killed some bucks on opening day, you know, some fours and sixes, had a great time, but didn't, didn't even know the first thing about hunting mature bucks. Okay. So how did, so how did that progress, you know, from seven, seven years ago or six years ago to where you are now, how did your pursuit for mature deer progress through the, through the years? Well, it was uh, I, the day that I started bow hunting. Is, I remember it so clear, like when I wanted to start. Um, it was middle of October, well before I would start gun hunting like I normally did. And one of my friends um, pulled up in his truck, had a nice big eight point, bigger than any buck I'd ever even seen in the wild. And it was the middle of October, and I hadn't even thought about hunting yet. And he told me, you know, about bow hunting, and he knew that I had access to a good chunk of land. And the next day, he hooked me up with another buddy. I bought his used bow. And two days from then, uh, my original friend was out in my woods helping me put up my first ever portable portable tree stand. Oh, nice. Nice. So what year was it? What was your first bow hunting year? Was it like you said seven years ago? So so basically Mm -hmm. 2009? No, actually, it would have been a lot longer than that, actually. It probably would have been about 2006. Oh, okay. All right. So almost coming up on 10 years. Um, yeah. So in uh, 2006, when you started hunting, how many acres did you have access to, to bow hunt? At that point, I had a pretty good chunk for Southern Michigan. It was 72 acres on a river. It was my grandparents' land and it, I was pretty much the only one bow hunting. Nice. So you kind of, uh, you kind of were able to run around and do whatever you wanted. What, what were some of the tactics in 2007 when you started? I mean, you, you kind of self-admittedly didn't know what you were doing. How did you learn? How did you, what kind of trial and error did you go through those first couple seasons? Well, you know, that property is where I started hunting and where I, I, you know, I've done most of the hunting throughout the total of my life. But, um, the one thing it changed, I had to, we sold that property. And when I was on that property, I grew up, learned from my grandpa, who was an old time hunter, had killed some big bucks in his life, real big bucks for Michigan, actually. But um, that was back when there wasn't as much pressure. His chunk of land got a lot smaller. And I was still just having the same tendencies, the same access points, the same walk into the same tree stands that my family had been hunting for 30 years without even considering wind direction at any given point. Okay. So, and I was just hunting that same way the whole time, not knowing any different until I had to change properties. And then I started reading and learning and started changing the way I hunted. So you were kind of complacent with your hunting style up until the, you know, your family sold this property, which basically forced you to change. 
uh, because you had to learn a completely new property. So tell me about that experience. What was your that that transition from the old property and your set ways to now, you know, having to change everything? Well, it, it kind of started right before that old property got sold. I started transitioning in the new ways, you know, in reading and wanting to hunt big bucks. And I wanted to get a big buck on my family property before it got sold. So I started changing. Um, but then it was still hard to break those old habits. So, you know, I should have been parking in a different spot. I should have been accessing along the river is how I would do it now. Right. Um, but I just couldn't bring myself to not park at the barn. We always parked at the barn, you know? Uh, so then when the new property or when I, that property got sold and I had to hunt a new property, it was all my new fresh ideas. And I was then able to implement the stuff that I'd been learning and listening to and reading. Okay. So what were some of the biggest mistakes you made uh, in your first couple of years, other than like, you know, learning the wind and access any, anything that stuck out that made you have kind of an aha moment in the timber? Um, well, the, you know, you just said it, the wind, but that was the biggest thing that, that initial family farm of ours just set up real bad from the majority of winds, but we just still hunted it. So we're walking across the ag field for say a night hunt towards the woods and the wind's blowing right into the woods as we're walking in. And I mean, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. So as you started to progress your hunting styles and you started to pay more attention to the details like wind direction and access routes, did you notice a direct result and were you able to see more deer and more, uh, more mature deer? Oh yeah. Well, as soon as I, I actually read the books by uh, the Eberharts. Um, I heard you guys talk about them in Wired to Hunt before. I read those was the first literature I really got a hold of. And I implemented some of those tactics on my grandparents' farm immediately. And then I was able to kill my first buck with a bow. And then my first two-year-old with a bow. And then I killed another, like, big one-year-old that I thought was a two-year-old at the time. You know, I was still learning things, but I was able to at least find some success at that point. And then I finally did connect on a mature buck actually in gun season on my grandparents' farm, the one of the last seasons right before it got sold. Okay. So as, as you started taking, you know, as you started racking up some, I guess the quote unquote body count for bow hunting. Um, and you started, you know, paying a little bit more attention to body size and maybe age structure and, you know, looking at the details of, of what makes a mature buck, a mature buck. Did your, did, did you start to put together a hit list or anything like that before the season started, um, to say, okay, this is a shooter. This is not a shooter. You know, at that point, um, it would have been 2011 when I had the first encounter with this buck. I I had some trail cameras out, and I was not, you know, I had changed my attitude. I wasn't going to shoot any more yearlings or small little basket rack eight points, but I wasn't really against shooting a big two-year-old either. I mean, those still got me really excited, um, you know, and I hadn't killed a lot of bucks with my bow at that point. So I was kind of, you know, if it was a nice eight point and it got me excited, I, I was going to shoot. It was my mentality at that point. And I had some bucks on camera, but you know, I didn't really have a hit list. There was only like two or three bucks that, that I guess I would have shot. 
and were all these deer that you were chasing on that new farm that you acquired or was it spread out between different farms? No, um, it was pretty much all on that property. I had another little property that I had access to hunt, but I didn't run any cameras there. And it was actually the first camera pole that I ever had on this, this new property that I got a picture of, of the buck that I ended up killing a couple years later. Okay. So, so you have what you said, three, two or three years of history with this buck. Well, the first time I saw him was in 2011 and I killed him in 2013. Okay. So, so two full years of history. So explain this, this property that you started hunting and you started chasing this buck. Why don't you explain the layout of this property? Ex- explain the terrain features, you know, where the, where was the bedding in relationship to the food sources and maybe uh, was there any water or creeks running through it? Yep. Well, it's pretty ironic, actually. It's actually another chunk of land that my dad owned. Um, he owns the property there with the rental properties. And I knew he's, he's owned it since 2001. I didn't find out until 2010 because I really didn't spend much time up there that he had also 40 acres of basically thicket and swamp with a horseshoe of woods around it um, on the back of the property. And I found that out in 2010. So did so, any did anybody hunt that piece? I mean, if you didn't know about it and your dad owned it, was he letting other bow hunters or any, other gun hunters hunt this little section? Yep, he had uh, another property manager who was running the property at the time, and that guy was hunting it. So even though he was hunting it, you know, it was my dad's land. And in 2010, I decided I was going to go there for Michigan has an early doe season in September. And I didn't want to, in my mind at that time, burn up the better property of my grandparents. So I thought for early doe, let's go out to my dad's property in Ionia. I've never been there. Let's just see what happens. So me and my friend go there. And the very first sit-in, I haven't even got my jacket and my harness on yet, and my friend tells me to stop moving. There's a buck. And I'm like, you're kidding. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And so there's a little six-point. And we end up seeing six bucks, and the two biggest bucks I'd ever seen in my life up to that point, all within the first two hours of a sit. And the two bucks we seen were a three- and a four-year-old, very, very good bucks from Michigan. Okay. So this, you, you just found a, a hidden treasure, a secret, you know, like Shangri-La deer, so to speak. And, um, so did you have any communication with this other guy who was hunting it or was he kind of keeping it? Sounds to me like he was keeping it, uh, oh, he, quiet. He was, he was definitely keeping it quiet. I mean, we, I had interactions with him, you know, throughout, you know, working for my dad and the company and stuff. And it was never mentioned actually that he hunted back there. And when I found out about it, you know, in 2010, you know, I, I, it was kind of surprising. And then he was open to talk to me about it. And I was planning on hunting it in 2010, you know, throughout the bow season. But then after we hunted it for early doe and I came back to do another scouting, you know, I just wanted to figure it out a little bit, even though I knew it was, you know, real close. You shouldn't be bumping anything, you know, or, or you know, trouncing through bedding areas. And as I show up on a Saturday to scout, this other guy is actually scouting as well. And he's got his quad parked right down in the middle of the bedding area. And he's, I mean, I could tell right away that any mature buck that I had seen would not be hanging around 
he was basically driving his quad in the same area these bucks were coming from. And I just knew that, you know, it would kind of be a waste to waste my time here hunting against this guy. Okay. So, so you kind of, instead of maybe having a conversation with him, like, Hey man, um, I don't care if you hunt this property, but you got to park your foiler somewhere else because you're bumping all the deer out of it. You just kind of said, okay, we'll let, I got other places to hunt. We'll let this guy, this guy take care of, yeah. you know, this guy. Like I said, I was, hunt. It was also the same year that I really, I was trying to get a mature buck on my grandparents' farm at the same time because okay. I'd never killed one, you know, so I really wanted that before I got sold. So it kind of made it easy to turn my back on, on this new property that I just hunted. So, okay, I'm sorry, but you just saw in one sit the biggest bucks you've ever seen from a tree stand, and you decided to back away from it just so you could hunt your gram your grandparents' farm. Yeah, like I said, in hindsight, it's uh, hunting this new property was the best thing, but it was hard for me to get out of my old habits. Right, my right. worst, my worst enemy. Well, you know, in a way, it, it's kind of has a lot of meaning. Your grandparents' farm probably had a lot of meaning uh, to it as well. And, and trying to, you know, harvest something there had more of a a, a different kind of significance, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it definitely did. So what happened on your grandparents' farm in 2000 and, uh, 2010? Did you uh, end up killing a deer with your bow? No, I didn't get one with my bow, but I did end up... Uh, I hunted hard all season. I passed bucks that I would have killed in seasons previous. You know, I was waiting for a big one. And I had a couple encounters with a mature buck, which was like, you know, the first handful of encounters I'd ever had with a big buck that season in the rut, but couldn't get it done. And then uh, it was like the third day of gun season in Michigan, which, you know, after the first day, it gets pretty tough to kill a big buck. And my brother wanted to go hunting. He hardly ever wants to go. So I wasn't going to turn down the chance to go hunting with him. So I was all about it. And I wouldn't even have probably been out there at that point um, during gun season because I just kind of, I like to bow hunt. But I went gun hunting and sure enough, 10 point came right in. It was, you know, how you always wish it would happen. It was pretty easy, really. Nice. Nice. So you, was was it a mature deer? Yeah, well, for Michigan, I consider it mature. It was three and a half. Okay, so yeah, uh, by by your standards, you shot a mature deer on your uh, grandparents' farm. So, did you have? It sounds to me like you had. You, you kind of accomplished your goal. Yeah, I was. I was really happy. Okay, all right. So, 2010 season's over. Uh, it's. Do you do any shed hunting? Are you running any trail cameras in the spring, summer, early early fall to try to pattern bucks on this new piece of property? Or uh, did you have any food plot aspirations or goals? Tell me a little bit about that. You know, I didn't do uh, any food plots that year, but I did uh, run a trail camera. I was just getting into trail cameras and I was just kind of getting pictures and not getting information, if you know what I mean. I wasn't I wasn't learning from what I was getting. I was just getting pictures of bucks, but I started learning in 2011. Yeah. Like I said, that was when, uh, I put out my first mineral station and I was smart enough. What I did was the way the property is, um, there's actually a wastewater lagoon in the back that we have to operate and service. So I have to drive back in the area that I'm hunting 
on a daily basis in the summertime. It's, it's weird how, you know, it's, it's a weird situation. So I have a little dirt, you know, two track that gets all the way back to the back where the lagoons are. And I put this camera in some really, really thick cover, but only 10 yards off, off the two track facing into the thick cover where there was a little opening. And I cut a little trail early in the summer so I could sneak in from the back and change the card or do whatever without going into the thick stuff, you know, but I was still getting pictures of what was going through this little opening and I could pour the mineral in from the backside, you know, over all this brush pile that I had made from the trail I cut. And I, and I was real careful. I I wore waders. I mean, I, I was not trying to spoof this buck. So, so in 2011, and this was this was before the 2011 season, right? Yeah, that was okay. previous season. Yep. Okay. So when you got trail camera pictures in 2011, was this buck on the camera? Oh yeah, he was. He was uh, the first buck that I got a picture of. Just a couple pictures into the very first card pull, okay. and uh, it, it was a great picture of him in velvet. It was. I think it was late July and he, I mean, he was a nice, nice buck at that point as a three-year-old. Okay. So what does, uh, what's this buck look like? And you, so you're saying he's a three-year-old in 2011. What did, what did he look like? Oh, he, he would have been a two-year-old in 2011. I'm sorry, a two-year-old. Okay. A two-year-old in 2011. What did he look like as a two-year-old? He was just a nice mainframe 10 point. He didn't have exceptional time lengths, but he had, you know, I would say average times, nice mass, good width, solid brows, and just solid all the way around. Not really exceptional in any area that year, though. Okay. So would he have made your hit list in 2011? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I was never passing him. I was trying to kill him ever since I got the first picture of him. Like I said, you know, now I would probably not have targeted him as a two and a half year old but at that point in my career i mean he was a big buck basically you know i wanted to kill him okay so 2011 uh you you, you're gathering information from your trail cameras um did you throw any other trail cameras up there to try to get a pattern or to try to find his food source or or were you kind of playing off so that your first move could be to go in and hunt you know I I kind of learned from hindsight from that whole year. It was a real good learning experience. In hindsight, I feel like I, now I would have killed in 2011. I'm glad I didn't, but I had the information. I mean, the daytime pictures, I had, um, you know, he's coming in. I'm getting pictures of him at 11 in the morning in, you know, 20 yards off my trail where my camera is. I mean, he's right there. He's bedding in my little thicket. The thicket that I'm hunting is about, well, the bedding area part of it is about 20 acres. Um, and what it is, is it's the old sewage area for way back in like the 20s where they just used to pump it out into this low wetland when that was allowed by the DQ. And then they had to stop doing that, obviously, and put in these lagoon systems. And when they stopped doing that, this old sewage waste field just started growing up and it's been growing up thick, thick for 
I, before my dad ever bought it, I don't know, but it's just thick, nasty in there in real, real rich soil. Okay. So, so now you're, so now the season comes around, right? And mm-hmm. how many times did, did you see him from the stand in 2011? Did you have any encounters with him? Um, what was your strategy as far as uh, tree stand locations? You know, I had uh, just a couple stands there. Um, I had put, what I did was, because I didn't know the lay of the land too much, I knew where I had seen deer before on my other hunts, but I had also progressed as a hunter. And on those other hunts, we went to a real good area. But it was, you know, like the same thing I'm, you know, getting on the guy that was hung before me. I was accessing a bad route. I think I was going too deep in just to get to where I saw a lot of sign when I should have been staying back on the edge, you know, and figuring stuff out before I made a move deep in. Okay. Um, so, so in that year, what I did was I put my stand right on the corner of this big uh, lagoon system where there was some trees. and. I'm looking into the thicket and then so to the east of me is the big ag fields to the north of me there's an excavation company a real big excavation company um you know lots of equipment and stuff the deer are used to it but so it kind of you know blocks them from the north and then to the west is a main highway and to the south is the uh the residential units so it kind of, you know, you got the bedding and then it just naturally they're going to go east out to those ag fields rather than cross the road, you know, 90% of the time. They just, it works out that way. So I just put my stand on the edge of the lagoon, which was on the edge of the thick stuff, and only hunted it when it took my wind from me back over the lagoons. Okay. So any encounters with him in 2011? Yep, I seen him the the very first time that I went out. What um, was the date? Oh, uh, it was October sixth. October sixth, and you saw him right off the bat. Was he still in a pattern of you know uh, bed? To, I take it he was still in a pattern of bed to food. Yep, like I said, it was my first time out. I I waited for the white right wind to go hunt that stand, and uh, the stand was it was right off the edge um and you could see real far out over the stick stuff but it's like eight foot tall so you can't really see the deer sometimes even when they stand up you know you just get glimpses of them moving until they get closer or get into some of the more open areas um in the first time i hunted uh the deer actually just appeared you know i'm i'm standing there sitting there in my stand looking and then all of a sudden he's right out there in the bedding area uh, about 150 yards out, just must have stood right up from his bed. Okay. So by the time you saw him, he was already well on his way to one of the egg fields, right? He, he was just kind of milling around, browsing in the uh, thicket area. There's all kinds of different, you know, browsing there. And he was, uh, but he was, yeah, working his way towards the egg fields. Okay. So let's talk about uh, like when you saw him there did you say okay i just gotta sit tight or hey i gotta move my tree stands no i i just sat tight um he i i don't know i just felt like it was a good spot he didn't come my way that night 
but I felt like it was, you know, a good possibility he could come by there. Just the way the land works, the lagoon also acts as kind of like a pinch point because it's all open grass around the lagoon, and they're big. I mean, they're, you know, 450 feet by 200 feet. There's two of them side by side. So they pinch right around them, and I got my stand right on the corner. And, I mean, it just seemed like logically at some point, if he was bedding in that thicket, he was going to use one. of. I mean, there was some nice trails going right in front of my stand. So I thought, you know, inevitably at some point he'll come here. Okay. Any other encounters with him in 2011? I never seen him again. Never saw him again. Okay. Did he show up on any trail cameras? <laughs> I I didn't really continue to run him that year once the season started. I kind of just stopped, and I, I knew the buck was in there. I wasn't that confident in my ability to run him without ruining it, and I knew that I kind of had a good buck that I didn't want to bust out of my bedding area. Yep. So I just stopped, stopped running him. Okay. All right. So you didn't see him in 2000 and and uh 11 after that for that number or that october 6th encounter what about uh after the season was over after gun season any sh- did you do any shed hunting did you do um any did you put your trail cameras back out tell me tell me what happened between 2000 the end of the 2011 season and the beginning of the 2012 season um i did go out and do a little shed hunting um, you know, we scouted a lot because I, I really hadn't scouted every square inch of the property at this point. It's so thick. I mean, it was, a, it was a chore to get in there and scout through these briars and stuff and really see where they were bedding. But I started to get a better grasp on that kind of thing. I didn't find any sheds. However, I didn't run my cameras in the late season or after the season or anything like that. Um, yeah, but I, I, I did put up a couple more stands. Um, okay. So did you have any encounters with the other hunter and did you think that maybe he was the reason why some this buck disappeared? Well, no, I didn't have any other encounters with him. Actually, he, yeah, I didn't get to that part, but he, he no longer was hunting there in 2011. Okay. Um, so, so that's why I went ahead and started hunt, hunting the buck a lot harder along with the fact that I had lost my grandparents' property. Okay. So now you had, you were kind you kind of had run of the run of that 40 acres. Um, and you were, was other than, were you the only bow hunter there or was there any other? Well, guys? I was, I was the only hunter at all with permission there. One of the issues was that year, um, the other guy had let a lot of other people hunt and not just himself. That was another reason why I kind of gave up on it. I mean, there was five or six guys running around on 40 acres. Um, and that was just the guys with permission. And there, there was a lot of trespassing issues to deal with as well. I, I, it was really surprising that this buck was living on this property. Well, I tell you what, think about it. And I've, I've had some encounters with some giant deer over the years as well, playing off of other hunters. So these hunters, they don't make it a secret that they're coming in and out of a, a timber. You know, they're probably not as scent free as they probably could be. They're they're not taking a good access route to a crappy stand location. So the deer know exactly where these hunters are going and mm. they're they're flanking their position where they have the wind in their favor or they're just heading the complete opposite direction. So yes, it's safe that 
that piece of you know that piece of property is safe because they 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 have the advantage over the humans. They know everything that's that's kind of happening. And one of my favorite tactics as a whitetail hunter is if I know where another hunter is at and I still I'm getting trail camera pictures of a mature buck in the area, I'm flanking that hunter and trying to cut off the deer that are that are trying to circle around that particular the, the other hunter that i have to share the property with you almost you almost use them to as a funnel to you exactly exactly you so you figure there's a buffer around them that the deer aren't going to go after a certain point in the season when they learn that these other hunters are there all the time exactly you want that, do that buffer yeah i've learned to do that and the thing the thing of the best part about that whole thing is you know those guys and that's why I like to do a lot of run and gun hunting. But those guys, they're in their same exact stand locations that they've been in for however, you know, 10, 20, yep. 30, however many years they've been hunting that property. That's how long they've had their, their blinds there or their stands there. All right. So nothing, nothing in 2011, you know, no sheds. Did you do any type of scouting? Um, before the 2012 season to maybe try to find a better access route or better tree stand locations? Um, yep. I definitely did some more scouting and found some better tree stand locations. I found a new nice piece of information. I hadn't realized that actually, like I said, there was an excavating company to the north, but to the west of the excavating company, I found out, there was some people that had about seven acres that was an old apple orchard and a travel corridor that allowed the deer to leave my bedding area and go north to the crop fields that were that way. And they, they had to cross a, a real small road to get those to those crop fields, um, but nothing like the main highway if they tried to go west. So that old apple orchard kind of acted as a, a staging area before they went to the bigger ag fields? It acted as a staging area, a feeding area, and a bedding area. It okay. was it was thick and loaded with apples. Um actually um my brother found a shed there, the only shed we've ever found here in Michigan, a six point shed. Um and we found just tons of sign in there. Okay. So no one went in there. That's your little you know, that's that's probably where nobody went. You know, mm -hmm. people were people exactly. were coming in and out of your area, even though it was real thick and nasty. The deer were using it kind of as a bedding area. So, what was your knowing this piece of information? What what was your strategy going then into the 2012 season? Well, I got a, a lot more serious running the trail cameras, and I put a stand up on the north the northeast corner of our property that I could hunt with my wind blowing out of the southwest to the northeast back to the excavating company where I didn't think the deer would be coming from and it allowed me to hunt the the main trails that were leaving my bedding area and heading north to the apple orchard. Okay. I was real excited about I was real excited about that stand. Um it was tricky access but I had you know I mowed a trail to it, I raked it long before the season and sprayed it you know, for 150 yards so I could get through this, just this tall grass area. Um, it wasn't a bedding area. It was like canary grass. Once it frosted, you know, it just laid down and the deer, you know, they don't want anything to do with it. 
but it was real noisy if I had to walk through it to try and get over to to this different area. Okay. So you did that. You were running trail cameras. When was your first, did you get any pictures of him uh, in the summer before the 2012 season? Yep. I got some good, good velvet pictures of him that year. Um, I got hard horn pictures of him all late season that year. I guess I skipped over the, the encounters of the season, but yeah, I got a lot of pictures of him that year at different spots throughout my farm too. Okay. So going into the, so he's, he's all over, he's all over that area. And you kind of got this new piece of information about the apple order, uh, apple orchard. So you're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I guess when was your first encounter? Did you have an encounter with him in 2012? I mean, you had way less hunting pressure on this property. You know, you're kicking people out. You're mm -hmm. you got one less hunter. You're the only hunter. You got the you know you found this new information. Did you see him more than one time? Did you see him at all? Yeah, yeah. Actually, 2012 was a really cool year. Um, again, the first time I ended up hunting ended up being October 6th, and I was actually hunting the same stand that I hunted in 2011. I had tweaked the stand a little bit, though, and I had blocked off my downwind. It was only 20 yards. They could sneak behind me, but I blocked that off with a brush pile. So the trail has, you know, went around in front of my tree now, and uh, I got a buddy with me, actually, he's filming for me and we're sitting there. It was a beautiful day and just the same exact way. Um, this time we pretty much seen him stand right up out of his bed. He stood right up almost in the same spot as 2011. First time out. Um, and I, I was super excited cause that was the year EHD hit really hard in Michigan. And I hadn't got a picture of him for a couple weeks at that point, And I was just worried that maybe he had, he had gotten, uh, killed by EHD. Okay. So you saw him in 2000 and 2012 in October 6th. Um, any other, any other encounters with him? Yep. On the sixth, we seen him and he came into 50 yards, but I just didn't feel, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, accurate enough at 50. I practiced at 50, but I didn't feel confident taking that shot. We got some awesome video footage of him. I was really getting into trying to film it too, you know, I was trying to do all that. You know, we just had a cheap little Sony camera and a cheap camera arm, but it's just fun. I enjoyed it. Yep. So I was trying to film him. Uh, we got video. And then I seen him again on Halloween. Um, I was going to this new ladder stand that um, I wanted, you know, the one that I put up for that travel corridor. And I bumped some deer getting into the stand in the access. And I got in there. I still ended up seeing four bucks, and I caught just a glimpse of him. Not in the orchard, but he was actually still back in my thicket. Um, but I seen him. It looked like he was going to go through the orchard. It gave me more confidence that 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 is what he was doing. Okay. And that was that a morning or an evening hunt? That was an evening hunt. Okay. So he uh, he was in the thicket, and he was coming out of it, right? And you were you were kind of cutting him off. Yeah. Well, I was trying to. Yeah. Okay. And if you can't hear, you could probably hear my kids screaming right now, but life of a dad, right? No, I can't hear them. <laughs> okay, good, good. All right. So, so then, uh, the third encounter I had with him in 2012 was on November 7th. I was, uh, this was an afternoon hunt as well. And I was rushing to get out of work and get out of there early. 
And I'm literally driving back to the point where I was going to park and change. And one of the tenants in one of our houses uh, had a problem with her sink. She just happened to flag me down. And so I wasted 30 minutes, you know, unclogging this lady's stupid sink. Got it done, taken care of, you know. Okay, no big deal. I'm still, you know, plenty early, I thought. Get dressed. I'm walking out there, and I'm going to my original stand that's on the edge of that lagoon because it just, for the predominant wind in Michigan, it works out, you know, seven out of ten times. I can hunt that without getting busted. And I'm on my way there, and sure enough, that buck and, like, seven does are about 30 yards right out in front of my stand, and they see me, yelp, they see me walking. And uh, it, it was a bummer. It what it wasn't a huge deal like it would be in a lot of parts of Michigan because I was on the edge of the lagoons where they have to be used to some level of human traffic, you know. So it's not like right. I was in the thicket. I was still on. I mean, I mowed the grass where I was standing, so you know it couldn't have been that big of a deal. But man, I was super bummed, and I really blamed that lady for it. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you kick her out? <laughs> no, I didn't. But I, I did tell her. I did tell her what happened. Because oh, at this point, actually, some of the people in the in in the the residential, they have seen the buck now. It's okay. it's known that he's living there, so it it is out. Okay, all right. So, you know, with with that kind of word spreading, was there other people trying to get into the area to kind of kill this buck? You know, um, I didn't know it that year, but there was, and I would find out about it the next year in two thousand and thirteen. Uh, someone trespassing on your property or someone on a neighboring property? No, no, someone had had gained permission. Uh, the excavating company had about 10 acres that, I mean, it, but it was the right 10 acres. It was, you know, it bordered that apple orchard and it bordered my thicket and they, and he had gotten permission to hunt that. Okay. All right. So there's that encounter. Okay, you got busted walking to the tree stand. Anything else after that? Not with him that year. Besides, I did kill a, a, like a non-typical eight point on November 11th with my bow. That was pretty sweet. Okay. Um, so, you know, I kind of had, I don't know, it came in, it looked cool, and I just got excited. I knew I had a good buck in there, but I don't know. I, you know, I shot it. I was super happy with it. A lot of my friends were questioning whether or not they would have shot it and held out for this big buck that I knew I had in there. Right. But he was, you know, a nice buck for me still. So I, I I shot that buck on the 11th. And then on for the opener of gun, I just took my brother out with me because he'll, he'll do that for gun season and I'll just take him out. We'll sit together in a spot. I'll try and film him. And uh, we did that for gun season, had a good time. I uh, didn't see the big buck, didn't hear any word of anybody killing him or anything. All right. And was this 40 acres the only 40 acres that you had access to, or were you hunting other properties as well? No, I got, uh, I had another chunk. There was a good little piece. It was 20 acres that I was the only one hunting on. And uh, I have, I'll, I have friends that I'll go, you know, get a hunt here with them because, you know, I help them trim all their tree stands or, you know, do something like that. And we'll kind of hop around with each other when it works out to not put pressure on, on certain properties when we know we're hunting a big buck somewhere. That's right. Okay. All right. So gun season passes, no more encounters with him. Uh, 
So now that you know this buck's in there, he's a regular. I take it you're getting pretty excited. I mean, did did you have any trail camera oh, pictures have, or evidence of him after after the gun season have, was yep. over? I got I got pictures of him. Um, I got pictures of him in late season January. Um, it's so crazy. The in the pictures I'll send it to you. You can see the houses a couple hundred yards in the background. And, uh, but I got pictures of him in late season. Uh, one of my friends who is good at killing big bucks, you know, he gets on me that I didn't kill him in that late season because, you know, you get him on a feed pattern late season. Um, you know, it's a good chance to kill him. But I honestly, I didn't even really hunt him that hard in the late season. I think I only went out three times uh, okay. with my bow. Okay. But then I was, I was really reading a lot. You know, um, you guys had started the podcast. I was watching Midwest Whitetail. I was really trying to gain knowledge and step up my abilities. Okay. And then, so what I did was I, I went to another guy who owned a house that bordered the apple orchard. His house bordered the apple orchard to the west. So it's two properties to the west of the excavating company, but also straight north of mine. But it's, all he has is a yard, like one acre. But what I did was I took your guys' advice. I went over there. I met the guy. And I got permission to park in his driveway. And now I have a new access point from the north. Bingo. Yep. And uh, that that was real, real game-changing as things unfolded. But not only did I get a new access point, I got a new stand on the corner of his yard that I could hunt with uh, any wind, you know, blowing out of the southeast, okay. you know, back to the northwest. And it's blowing right at his house. And then I get to hunt the whole apple orchard in my whole little strip of woods and thicket, you know, undisturbed, without accessing through it, nothing, you know, it was a another great spot to hunt where I could hunt repeatedly without getting busted or educating any deer. Okay. So not only did you, you got a new stand location out of it. You got a new access point to your property. Mm -hmm. How many, how many tree stands did you have access to through that guy's yard? Uh, it, it really only gave me access to the original ladder stand is what I was getting it for. That new la that ladder stand that I had bumped deer getting to the first time, you know, even though I had made a nice trail, I put the effort in, but it still wasn't the right way to access it. Yep. Coming from the north gave me totally different access. And there, the way the topography is, there's a little ridge on my property and then a bench and then my thicket. And I walked um, the backside of the ridge and the deer would either bed on the bench or the thicket, but they were out of my view either way because I was on the backside and down in the bottom of that of that ridge where it was just park effect woods. It wasn't wasn't anything in there. Okay. So trail cameras, the summer of yep. two thousand and thirteen. I take it he showed up. Yeah, I uh I ran uh I ran four cameras on the forty acres that, that summer pretty much covering each kind of corner that you would leave from or come in from and i put one it was, it was a great spot for a trail camera off the back of that guy's yard and i put a mineral station there and i was still getting pictures of him at the original camera site from 2011 
And I mean, so I'm getting pictures of him on every single side of the thicket and I'm getting daytime pictures of him at all four of these sites that are, you know, all the cameras, the farthest distance between two of them was probably 400 yards. So he was kind of, he was an active deer. He was active, but he was active in that core area. I mean, with the hunting pressure around there, he, I can't believe that he was just wandering around every other property like that. Right. Right. You know, he was, he was living on, I knew that I had a special situation where this deer, it wasn't leaving my property. You know, I, I kind of felt the pressure that this is a once in a lifetime deer in Michigan. You got a perfect scenario to kill him. You patterned him. You know, I felt like I had to get it done. It had become an obsession. I mean, it was, you know, my girlfriend knew (laughs) not to, I don't know. It was just a big deal to me. Everybody knew about it. Okay. So when was your first encounter with this buck in 2013? Um, 2013, well, I had awesome velvet rut. I mean, he had blown up massive bucks. And uh, so I was super excited. He was running with two other real nice bucks as well, actually. And the first couple hunts were just uneventful. But uh, then finally, a couple weeks, I think it was 10 days into the season. I don't remember the date on this one, but we got a north wind and I had set, oh yeah, I had also set a camera finally or a stand at my original camera site on the edge of that fixed, fixed off where my trail was and I could only hunt it with a north wind. So we finally got the north wind and I knew it was risky because I had gotten pictures of this deer like I'm one in the afternoon at this camera site. I mean, he's bedding, I know, within 75 yards, you know, Yep. And, uh, but I, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to make a move. I've been watching this deer. I know where, you know, I can get in here. And so I did the same thing. Like if I was going to check my camera, I'd done that a bunch of times and never ruined it and got to the stand, which is right where the camera was, same tree got up in there. I mean, I'm not the uh, most elegant guy. I'm a little clumsy. You could say, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I managed to stay ninja quiet sneaking in there that day. There was no tings. I mean, I, took my time i was in there well early and uh it was perfect but then it was one of those nights where it was like too perfect it was just dead calm no wind and i sat there and sat there and seen one doe right as shooting light faded but i knew i knew that deer was right there and then years before i would have got down right after that doe left but something told me i couldn't get down and I stayed in my stand, and about 15 minutes after shooting light, I heard one twig snap, and then another twig snap, and then I could see the deer right in front of my stand in that little opening. And uh, he was literally 10 yards underneath me. I got a trail camera picture of him. It was the best, one of the best pictures I got of him. And it was just, he's in the moonlight. I mean, it was, of the whole three-year chase, that might have been the coolest point of it all. I didn't kill him. But I got so close, the closest I'd ever been, and I got a great picture out of it, and it was that was really cool. So in a way, it was kind of a victory for you, even though you didn't, you know, even though you didn't kill him because of regulations. You know, you probably could yeah, have thrown, you probably could have thrown an arrow at him if it, if you if there wasn't oh, rules. I could, I could have you know sent center mask on his body, but I wasn't about to do that. And, uh, but the thing was, I did, I did get a win out of it because I also seen him exit the thicket 
and where he exited paralleled my dirt trail that I that I would normally um, take to get in and out. Okay. And I realized that if I was if I were to have been hunting my lagoon stand that night and then left on that access trail, he would have easily seen me from where he was in the thicket and probably just stood there and let me walk past before he then proceeded onto the egg fields. Okay. So I, I kind of learned, I think that that's, he had me patterned from that stand. Um, so I learned that, and that, that was, that was quality because then I didn't, I didn't hunt that stand anymore. Okay. All right. So why don't, why don't you tell, let's go right to, I mean, was there anything else big that happened between that encounter and the, the encounter where you ended up killing him? There was one other thing. Uh, that's where the other guy on the other property came into play. He actually posted a picture on this Michigan hunting site called MI Buckhole, and he posted a picture of this buck that my buck was running with. And I didn't even know this guy at the time, but I seen the picture on the site. I knew the buck, and I contacted him, and, you know, we messaged back and forth. I find out he's hunting right where I'm hunting. He's got pictures of my buck, and now the pressure's on. Right. Okay. And yeah. So, so then, uh, so where is this guy hunting in relationship to where you're hunting? He would be hunting, uh, basically 150 yards to the north of where my ladder stand is. Okay. All right. So on the, Uh, on the north corridor, pretty much. Okay. All right. So you got that information. So you're like, okay, well it's now or never type of deal. Yep. So I figure out the guy's hunting there. I know he's got pictures of my deer. I know he's got to be a pretty good hunter because he killed a good buck, and that's hard to do in Michigan, you know, with his bow. So it's October 22nd. We finally got the right wind for that ladder stand. I haven't even been there since I got the new access because it's such, it's just the thickest, the, the best spot, but it's so hard to get to. So I didn't even go there. So on October 22nd, I went in at like 1 p.m., with my pole trimmer and all my gear and I trimmed out the stand and I got all set up and I, I didn't like the fact that I had done all that before I got in there. You know, it was a good spot, but I, you know, I, I was thinking, well, it's the first time in, you know, I was real quiet. I didn't make any metallic noises or anything. Again, I just trimmed a couple branches and, uh, on my way in, I scooped, spooked a couple does and they ran off to the north, but they didn't really bust out of there like crazy. They just kind of meandered, you know, away from me. And so I was kind of bummed about that. I got my stand. It was like 3.30, and I'm just like, man, I was literally sitting there thinking, I'm like, it's a ladder stand. It's Michigan. You're never going to kill a mature buck from here. And then I heard a twig snap, and I looked over my shoulder, and he was 75 yards away coming right at me. And uh, I had my video camera with me, and I tried to get it on video, but he, like, went behind a tree, and it just didn't work out. But it worked out perfectly for me because I was able to use the tree that he went behind, and I drew, and then he stepped out, and then I leaned back from behind the tree and shot right through the V of the tree that I was in. I was kind of in a crotch, and uh, I shot him at 15 yards. You know, he was looking away from me. What I think he was doing is he was batting on the bench, and with the wind, he was uh, paralleling the thicket, and I think he was scent-checking it. 
um, because the wind would have been coming from that thicket right in his face, and he was a little bit higher than it, and but I was behind him still, and because he was looking into the thicket when I shot him, drilled him, uh, thought I did anyway. It's not even four o'clock in the afternoon. There's still three hours of daylight left, and I just smoked the best buck I've ever seen. So what what what, so, what kind of thought you you drew back, you shot him. What kind of thoughts were going through your head when you released the arrow? You knew that it hit him, but you but you were kind of unsure. What was going through your head? Well, I was pretty confident because right before I shot him, I mean, I settled myself and I said, make this count, you know, because he was looking away. I told myself, you have time. And I, you know, I tried to put a good shot on him. And uh, I know I hit him pretty good. I heard it hit him. I seen it hit, you know, in the in the vital area. Um, but I wasn't 100% on it. You know, I, you're just apprehensive. It's a monster buck. It happened quick. Um, and then so my good hunting buddies that I knew, that knew I was hunting him, uh, I waited an hour. They drove up to my farm, which is like 45 minutes from where they're all hunting. They all left their tree stands, um, my three best hunting buddies. And they came up. And, you know, we looked at my arrow. It's been two hours now since I shot him, but still an hour before daylight or before dark. We find my arrow, and it looks like it got about, you know, 10 inches of penetration, but it's broke off. There's not much blood. And we start trailing where he went, and we we went like 25 yards, and we haven't even really found but one drop. And I know we went back into my bedding area, and nobody's going to bump him out of there. So we're thinking, we're debating, you know, do we do we turn around? Do we go back? What do we do? And uh, I just kind of got down on my knee a little bit so I could see under the vegetation down this deer trail, and I could see white about 75 yards up in front of me, a white belly. And uh, it was him, and it was it was pretty surreal at that point. I ran up to him, and it was uh, it was pretty awesome recovery. So what did this, what did this buck end up scoring? So we kind of uh, have an idea what, what, uh, did you score him? Yep. I, I never had him officially scored. I had all, all my friends kind of rough scored him together. I don't think they want to give me any extra inches, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he scored 154 for what they got. So either 150 class is what I tell people. Okay. Well, I tell you what, that, the picture of him, he looks bigger than 150. He he's yeah. he's a stud. Yeah, he's a monster. His mass is what really sticks out when you see him in person. I mean, it, it just carries all the way through. And uh, yeah, he he looks nice. I'm looking at him right now on the wall. <laughs> so, do you have any um, for that particular? I mean, so success. You kind of know how to hunt this property. Do you have? So now you said this buck was running with a couple other good bucks. Do you have another buck that you're kind of already switching to for the uh, for this upcoming well, season? Well, that was 2013. Then 2014, I didn't kill anything. And 2015, uh, I didn't kill anything either. But I was able to get my brother his first uh, good, you know, three year old eight point here in Michigan in gun season, which was just as rewarding for me. And then. Uh, last year I killed a nice eight, um, that I had, um, trail, you know, trail camera pictures of preseason. I actually shot him and wounded him on the 13th and then shot him again on the 14th of November, the day before gun season. 
and I killed him from the same stand, my same original stand on the edge of that lagoon. And, uh, but now this year I have a, another eight that I now, as long as he's back, this will be the third year that I've been chasing him. And I know he's at least four and a half, which for Michigan is really mature here. So it sounds like you got a honey hole. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And man, I stumbled into it because also the, after I killed my big buck that year, um, I really didn't hunt for like two weeks, but it, it was October 22nd when I killed him and the rut hadn't even really started yet. I had another buddy that I brought up and, uh, on his birthday, he killed his first ever nice eight point also out of that same stand on the edge of that pond. Perfect. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, let me, uh, you know, say congratulations to you and let me be the first to, uh, to wish you good luck in 2016, man. Hey, thanks a lot, Dan. I appreciate it. Again, and, and thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your story. Sweet. I appreciate you having me on. First off, I want to thank Ryan for coming on the show and sharing his story with us. It's a pretty unique story, and that just goes to show you that if you want something bad enough, you will find a way to go get it, and that can be either in life or that can be in deer hunting. If there's a buck out there and you want to kill him, you will find a way to kill him. Whether it's more hours in a tree stand or less hours in a tree stand or knocking on a couple doors to find the right access to a piece of property. Just because this buck isn't coming by a tree stand that you may have sat in for the past 15 or 20 years, you need to be mobile you need to move and you need to find a way to kill that buck any means necessary. And that's something that Ryan did. So congratulations to Ryan on an awesome story and an awesome buck. Make sure if you guys want to see pictures of this buck, go visit the ninefingerchronicles.com backslash podcast. Find this particular podcast, uh, the Hunter Profile podcast with Ryan Mead, and uh, you can take a look at the pictures. Now, Also, I want to send a huge shout out to all of you guys for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more from the Nine Finger Chronicles, be sure to check me out on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Also, once a week, uh, we're trying to do some some type of live feed, which will also be on Facebook. And I'm I'm calling it the BS sessions, the Nine Finger Chronicles BS sessions. And what that is, is it is a live feed that I'm doing with a guest or by myself. It's not scripted, it's not rehearsed, and it is off the hip. And uh, sometimes it can turn out really good, and sometimes it may just turn out like dog shit. But that's the reality of it. That's the kind of person I am, I guess. Anyway... It's all about deer hunting or hunting in general or Western hunting. I mean, it's about, it can be about anything. So make sure you guys uh, keep an eye out for that. Last and definitely not least, I want to send a shout out to Exodus Trail Cameras for uh, partnering up with this podcast, believing in uh, what I'm doing. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for that. Uh, The guys from Exodus, Chad and Matt. Other than that, hey, Have a great weekend. If you're out turkey hunting, be safe. And uh, let's uh, blast some beaks, so to speak. Hey, that was dumb. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm just going to 
slowly, awkwardly back out of this podcast like I've just said something really stupid to an attractive woman at a party. So stupid that I'm going to walk backwards until... And remember to wear your damn safety harness.